Well, this morning, let's go to Galatians chapter 5 again. Got quite a few pages of notes this morning, and it's hard to disappoint you. As I was getting up to come up here, uh, Laura had her little index card with her memory verse on there. Robin said, you forgot your notes. And I said, I bet you wish they were that short. <laughs> so last week, the thought was that I could at least get through the fruits of love, joy, and peace, but I only got through love and joy. And then it turns out, as I got to really study and pondered on this, that we're just going to do peace today. And uh, it's probably going to be long enough you'll be glad for that. And then I really do think I may get through the other six in one sermon, but I don't want to make any promises. Um, but honestly, as we have seen, uh, the, the theme of Galatians is our liberty in Christ, with the theme verse being chapter 5 and verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage, as we say every time, because context is so important. I never knew who, who is listening to a sermon in this series for the first time. So Paul is passionately writing to these Galatian believers, and he's upset with them because they've allowed false teachers to come in and teach a work salvation. They added, these Judaizers added works to the gospel of grace, and no doubt they would have said that salvation was through Christ but that the only way to Jesus was through them. Keep the Old Testament law. Males had to be circumcised. Uh, become an Old Testament Jew, and then you can be a Christian. And I think we see the cults doing the exact same thing today. They talk about Jesus and grace and the cross, but it's a footnote to what they actually believe. It's nothing but a parenthesis to their system. And really, the only reason they even bring it up is to satisfy their critics. Uh, it's not salvation by grace at all. But we see... Uh, Paul defending justification by faith in the first four chapters, destroying the arguments of these Judaizers. But in chapters 5 and 6, Paul really begins to shift gears, and he begins to talk about the implications of what a person believes concerning salvation. It makes all the difference in the world. Because as we said, our belief determines our behavior. And the point that Paul is proving is that it's the legalists that actually burn out. They're trying to achieve salvation they're trying to do the work of God in their own efforts, their own flesh. They'll run out of gas doing that. It's the born-again believers that have been saved by grace through faith that can serve God out of the freedom of salvation, the freedom of a grateful heart of forgiveness. The, we can serve God out of love. That is possible, you realize, right? It's not just out of a fear of condemnation both of God and of your peers. That's not a noble reason to want to serve God anyway. And up to this point, we've seen that Paul has fought against the things that will enslave, false gospels and those that promote them, salvation by the works of the law and the works of the flesh, which are sin. And we've seen these things. But in the text we're looking at uh, both last week, today, and probably at least next week, um, Paul begins to describe the things that will make a person free, that will give us liberty. And no doubt the Spirit-filled life is a life of freedom, and everything else involves a bondage of some kind. Uh, but the fruit of the Spirit, they are the traits of someone who is living a life of freedom in Christ. Uh, today, once again, we're going to be looking at the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. We've seen uh, 
love and joy already, but we're going to look at peace today, the peace of God or the fruit of peace. And with that in mind, let's read our text. Well, Once again, our main thought is going to come from verse 22, but for the sake of context, we'll read a few more verses after that. Uh, Galatians 5 and verse 22, it says, but, and the but is in contrast to the works of the flesh, the, the adultery, uh, fornication, uncleanness, all the things we looked at. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another and envying one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. Thank you for the good spirit here this morning. Thank you for your people that you've called together to this local body of believers for such a time as this. I pray that you would make us salt and light in this dark valley, in this dark world. Uh, Father, we do just pray that uh, you would give us peace. Uh, because, God, that's really one of the main things that separates us from a lost and dying world is we're supposed to have peace in our life and peace within our hearts, minds, and souls. And sometimes it seems to elude us. And I'm no better, Lord. I, I can say the same thing. I pray that you would empty me of sin and self. Fill me your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you just make uh, preaching powerful and understandable. I pray that Christ would be magnified. And it's in His name we pray these things. Amen. So we're looking this morning at the peace of God or the fruit of the Spirit and before we really get into the points, um, I, I'm really, as you know, I'm really big on definitions. I, I like for us to really understand what's being communicated because words have meaning. Uh, the word peace comes from the Greek word irene, and it means harmony, tranquility, or oneness. And I found it interesting that in the Bible, this word irene is also translated rest. It's also translated uh, one. Because uh, peace carries the idea of unity. I think it's very important to get that down because that makes sense. Because if you think about it, the opposite of peace is war. And war uh, carries the idea of fighting or struggle or strife. In other words, you have to have uh, division in order for there to be war. If there's no division and everybody's in harmony and in unity, there's no war, right? And so the opposite of peace is war. Uh, this can be true for nations, but it's also true of individuals. For those that don't have the peace of God, there is a war raging on the inside of them. Uh, you know, if there's two nations at war, there's no peace. If you have husband and wife at war, there's no peace, especially in that house. That's tough. Uh, if you have a war with inside the soul and heart of someone, there is no peace. And I don't know about you, but I want to have peace, don't you? I want to live a life of peace. Uh, but the question is, for those who don't have any real peace, what or who are they fighting against? If you're at war, chances are, or excuse me, if you don't have peace, chances are you're at war. And I would say this, there are sometimes, uh, both I would say on a national level, and certainly on an individual level, there are times where war is necessary. But I will say this, the only honorable war that ever needs to be fought are the wars fought in pursuit of peace. 
That's true in our lives, certainly. So what robs a person of true peace? I've got three things that I want to look at this morning, but before I say that, I want to kind of uh, give an umbrella for the rest of the message. And this is really important. The Bible speaks of two different kinds of peace. The first one is peace with God, and the second one is the peace of God. Peace with God is going to be... uh, I'm going to talk about that in the first two points. But peace with God is salvation. It is uh, no longer being under the condemnation and wrath of God. It is being legally pardoned by God. That is peace with God. Uh, As if uh, maybe if somebody was in prison and the governor of that state pardoned them, they would be at peace with the law at that point. Uh, The peace of God... Uh, is that peace that Christians have in spite of their circumstances. We're going to talk about that in the third point. But I just kind of wanted to give an overview of those two things as we go. So what robs a person of true peace? Well, number number one, uh, it would be war with the sovereign. We're at war with God. If If you don't have peace with God, then by default you're at war with God whether you think you are or not. That's the biggest problem that I run into when I try to witness in the highways and hedges is to, you know, before you can give them the cure, you've got to give them the diagnosis. And the diagnosis is they're at war with God. They're under the condemnation and wrath of God even as they stand there and breathe. And most people just simply do not believe that. Uh, But if we're not saved, if we're not right with God, we're at war with God. Uh, Galatians 5.22, let's look at our main verse here. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Uh, Romans 8, verses 6 and 7, Derek brought that up this morning, but uh, it says to be carnally minded, fleshly minded, the carnal mind, that is that unregenerate mind, that is a lost person. It says for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and and peace. The opposite of the mind at war with God is peace. Because the carnal mind is at enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. The carnal mind, the unsaved mind, is at war with God. Uh, The sinner who does not know Christ is at war with God, whether they realize it or not. They love what God hates, and they hate what He loves, namely being sin. Um, that, that, we war, that God hates that we love is sin. Uh, Jesus said in John 3 and verse 18 that non-believers are condemned already. He goes on to say in verse 36 of the same chapter that the wrath of God abideth, present tense, abideth on them. In John 8 and verse 34, Jesus calls them a slave or a servant of sin. And mankind has been fighting a war against God ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. Now, if you think about this, if you think about the very first sin committed against God by humans, it really sets a tone for what sin actually is and what it does. And if you think about it, uh, they had everything perfect. I mean, they were playing by a different set of rules. Uh, Eden was a perfect paradise. There was no sin uh, that had tainted anything. There was no suffering. There was no death. There was no disease. Uh, I mean, things were good. 
And yet God commanded Adam and Eve, one thing they could not do was to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan shows up on the scene. We talked about this when, with, with David who had an in-home Bible study on Tuesday. We talked about this very thing about the fall of man. And that is that when Satan comes along, he says, Yea, if God said, you should not eat of every tree of the garden. And, and of course, Eve says, No. He said, uh, In the day that we eat thereof, we would surely die. And Satan says, Thou shalt not surely die. God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, you'll become as gods, knowing good and evil. The, the, the temptation was, the lie was this, that if you would eat of this, that you would become a god yourself. And they said, oh, that sounds really appealing. I think I like that idea. So understand this, every single sin that a person can commit, whether they realize it or not, in some way is always a declaration of independence against God. Sin is always an act of independence against God. It is trying to find happiness and power and satisfaction outside of God Himself. By the way, since we live in this part of the world, I think I'll go ahead and tell you this. Did you know that the goal of Mormonism, the exaltation of Mormonism, is the exact same lie that Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden? I wonder where that theology came from. Think about that for a minute. But any religion that would tell you uh, that the good news of their message is that you can become your own God, do your own thing, uh, find all your wildest dreams come true outside of God, that is satanic. Because all sin, in some way, is an act of defiance against God. It is an act of uh, insurrection against God. And of course, we know the story, Romans 5, 12, for us by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And so, but that's just human nature. We, we want to be our own God, we want to write our own story, and in doing so, we are fighting against our Creator. How in the world can somebody expect to find happiness and peace when they fight against the very God that created them? That's not a winnable battle. I'll just spoiler alert. You're not going to win that one. The Bible says, God be for us, who can be against us? But I want to turn that around and ask the question, if God be against us, who can be for us? And so if you really want to be miserable, fight against God. Look about what Romans 9 and verse 20 says, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that were pliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why, have thou, why hast thou made me thus? And this begs the question, exactly how does a person fight against God? How, in fact, do we fight against God? Well, that brings us into our next point. We've seen war with the sovereign, but I can't talk about that without bringing up number two, and that is war with the standard. War with the standard. I want to bring back... Uh, Romans 8, verses 6 and 7, because I want to focus on a, another point within these verses. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is at enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. We need to, if you've got your Bibles open to Romans 8, or maybe sometime later in your notes, you need to go <laughs> underline that phrase. The carnal mind is not subject it is not in submission to the law of God. That's how we fight the sovereign. 
is by fighting against the standard of the sovereign, the Word of God. That's how we fight against God, is by fighting the truth of God. Uh, if we think back to what we just talked about with Adam and Eve, the very first time that Satan is quoted in a Scripture, he is questioning the authority of the Word of God. The very first time he opened his mouth, he said, Yea, hath God said... Did he really say that? He lied. This is what the real truth is. He is still doing the same thing today. And so um, people fight against God by fighting against His Word. And uh, it's the very thing, as we mentioned, that Adam and Eve disobeyed. It's what men and women fight against with every fiber of their being. People are master truth suppressors. It really is a talent. It's amazing how good people are at uh, Romans 1, verses 18 and 19 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. It's made clear to them. For God hath showed it unto them. Uh, we, could, we could have read the whole chapter of Romans 1 if we wanted to, but for the sake of time we didn't. It would be great to read in your own time. Uh, but uh, as I've been witnessing to the LDS, I've had this particular issue come up several times, and that is the issue of fairness. In other words, how could God possibly judge a person? How could, you, how could God possibly send somebody to hell that's never even heard the gospel? How is that fair? And of course, the LDS have a doctrine to where when people die, they're going to get a second chance. And after you've died and you've seen all those things, and you know it's coming if you don't get right, well, there's only one decision to make. And so in a very real way, it's a kind of a, a doctrine of universalism where everybody gets saved in the end. And so, but here's the thing, the answer to that, and this is what I always tell them, God's already dealt with that. He's already answered that question. In Romans 1, He said, they are without excuse because even somebody in the jungles of nowhere that's never seen a Bible, never talked to a missionary, never heard the name of Jesus, they can look outside and know there's a Creator. They have enough light to know there's a Creator. And they either have an option to desire to know that Creator or to push that Creator to the side and create gods made in their own image. And so if a person dies like that, they stand before God in judgment and they say anything along the lines of, well, I never even heard about Jesus. He's going to look at them and say, you didn't want to. You didn't pursue the knowledge of God that you had, and you suppressed it and traded out the, cre the Creator for the creature, and so they're going to be guilty by that. And so God has already dealt with these things. The truth is God could throw us all into hell, and He doesn't even have to have an excuse because we're all deserving of that. And so um, man s suppresses the truth of God. We see it in our world today. God says that He created them male and female. Uh, mankind says that that's a social construct and we get to decide our own gender. <laughs> Isn't that foolishness? Uh, God says it's an abomination for men to lie with men and for women to lie with women. And the world says that's an honorable thing. God says to abstain from sexual activity outside of marriage. The world says that's archaic and boring. God says to tell the truth and not to lie, and yet everyone has lied. One thing that I found amazing is both at the fair and um, the, uh, the, uh, the Day on the Quad that we did this week, that went great, by the way, 
All in all, talked to probably close to 400 people, including, you know, both those events added up. And out of all the people that I talked to, I only found one person that said they had never told a lie in their whole life. And I looked at her and I said, ma'am, you're telling one now. <laughs> if looks could kill, I would have been dead. But you know that's true. And I know it and she knows it. So everyone's lied. And you know, lies tell us who we really are. Because there's something we do, they're preconceived, we know it's wrong, and yet we do it intentionally because we think that's going to benefit us. What does that say about us? What does that say about our hearts? God says that He hates the hands that shed innocent blood, and yet women are marching in the street shouting, My body, my choice. Nonsense. People fight against the truth of God by fighting... Uh, people fight against the God of truth by fighting against the truth of God. And this is astounding, considering that Christ said, For you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth is what makes us free. The Word of God, the truth in the Word of God set us free and bring us peace, and yet that is the very thing that people are fighting against. Now, what's interesting is uh, people understand the consequences of fighting against truth when it comes to the realm of science and medicine. Most of the time that's true. But not in the scriptural realm. People seem to miss that. Like, think about it like this. People understand the absolute truth of gravity. I, so far, I have never heard of somebody jumping off a skyscraper and identifying as a bird. Because they know what's coming, right? They're going to be a pancake on the sidewalk. Nobody has ever jumped off the skyscraper and said, I don't believe in gravity. Yeah, you do. And if you're not, you will in just a few seconds. People understand this when it comes to uh, medical science. If a doctor diagnoses them with cancer and gives them a specific uh, timeline of their death, unless they have this treatment, guess what they're going to do? They're going to take the treatment because the diagnosis is telling the truth. The tests are not lying. But when it comes to uh, spiritual things, when it comes to the things of God, people are so rebellious, they're blinded by their own rebellious desires. The most interesting and by far the most heated conversation that I had with a student on campus, um, it was actually, it had to been Lord because that particular time I had quite a few people standing there. And I was actually talking to another young man and he kind of interrupted. And you could tell he was, he was agitated. He, he, he said, I, I don't like some of the phrases you're using. I don't like the concept of absolute truth. It's too narrow. And I said, really? I said, do you think rape is wrong? And understand, he's got some young ladies standing around him, along with some young men as well. And he didn't want to answer the question. He kept, uh, uh, anyway. I said, is rape wrong? And he just, he kept going around it. And he said, you know, on, on a personal level, I think it is. But he said, if I'm going to be consistent, I have no way of saying that rape is emphatically wrong. And I said, well, at least you're honest, and now you've shown everybody how bankrupt your worldview is. Because if he had said yes, that is absolutely wrong. You know what he's done? He's appealed to an absolute standard. Well, where did that come from? Where did that come from? Well, it came from the lawgiver. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, yeah, your worldview is bankrupt, but at least you're consistently wrong. <laughs> At least you're consistently wicked. And so, yeah, I've I met very few people that would actually utter those words that I can't say that rape is wrong. But he, hey, he, he made his bed, he laid in it. 
And so, um, but we, we, we understand that that's just nonsense. But they're blinded by their own rebellious desires. He wanted to be his own man, his own God. I think, I believe, this is my standard. Well, that's good. Here's what I told him. I said, if you break the law in the state of Utah and you stand before the judge and he sentences you, it's not going to do any good to say, judge, I don't agree with that. Because you're not going to be judged by what you think. You're going to be judged by what he said. You're not going to be judged by your own opinion, logic, whatever. You're going to be judged by His standard. And it's not going to be a good day for a lot of people. And so sin always promises freedom, but the ironic thing is it always brings slavery. Listen, you can't name a single sin. You you can't name a single act of disobedience against God that doesn't come with consequences. Not one. Just some things I thought of off the top of my head. And I'm going to compare both what the world says and what God's plan is. So the world encourages and celebrates uh, sexual activity outside of marriage. And we know, we know the consequences of that. We know those things. STDs, unwanted pregnancy, the, the thought of having to deal with an abortion, guilt, shame, emptiness, uh, a lack of love. It's just an act. It's an act of lust with no real connection involved. It is just so sad. And we know those things, and yet that's supposed to be freeing? That's supposed to be liberating? What about God's plan about sex? Marital sex. That is the only acceptable sex to God. We said that a few weeks ago when we dealt with these sins. Uh, No guilt or shame. We're not doing anything wrong. There's no fear of pregnancy because we have the family structure uh, to uh, deal with that. There's no fear of STDs in a monogamous, a monogamous relationship. It's almost like God created it to be that way. I mean, you know, you know um, I, I saw a picture on Facebook that I know this is going to get me in trouble, but I thought it was hilarious. Uh, they showed a picture of husband and wife walking down the aisle after they had been pronounced man and wife, and somebody had posted that picture, and it said the monkeypox vaccine. That's true, isn't it? You don't have to worry about that, amen, if you just do what you're supposed to do. It's, it's a loving and fulfilling. It's two people sharing a life together. That's beautiful. It's peaceful. It's fulfilling. There's no fear of any of these consequences we mentioned. Somehow that's supposed to be boring. Somehow that's supposed to be more freeing than the way the world... And man, I'm telling you, you talk about perversity. You know, the word perversion literally means to twist or to turn around. That, I mean, that's as crooked as a dog's hind leg. I'll translate for you later if you need me to. But think about, think about lying. Lying causes guilt, fear of getting caught, always having to remember what you said, losing the trust of others. We could go down the list. God's plan of being honest builds trust. There's no fear of being caught. We don't have to remember what we said. There's peace in that. I think about stealing. There's the fear of being caught, possible trouble with the law, guilt, no feeling of accomplishment whatsoever. Um, Uh, But then you compare that to God's plan, working by the sweat of your brow, no fear of getting caught, it's honorable, there's no fear of the law, there's a great feeling of accomplishment, there's going to bed at night knowing that you earned an honest living, there's peace in that. There's no peace the other way around, constantly looking over your shoulder and every time somebody questions you, you have to remember what you said. Somebody once said that tell the truth and you'll never have to remember what you said. That's really good. Um, 
Most importantly, though, in all these situations, not just avoiding the consequences, but we're seeking to do right simply for the fact that we want to honor the Lord, be right with God in a right relationship with Him. And it's amazing that people will fight against the very thing that can give them true uh, freedom, happiness, and peace. While at the same time, they're exalting their change. They're literally walking around with their wrist in chains, and they're going, wow, look at my chains. This is so awesome, guys. Why don't you be free just like I am? (laughs) That's how crazy our society is. Um, I I think about um, Isaiah uh, 57, verses 19 through 21. The Lord says, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is afar off, and to him that is nearest, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Uh, in other words, I mean, think about that illustration, being on a stormy sea. The, the water is just turning. I don't know if y'all have ever been at sea in a storm, but I actually have. Back in 2006, the men of our church went on a deep sea fishing trip in the Gulf of Mexico there. And uh, there was a tropical storm that was only about a day or two out. And we got up early that morning, went out, and I knew it was going to be a bad day when as we were going to get on the boat, there's some men that had come in that had gotten thrown overboard. They were soaking wet. And I could hear a guy, you could tell he was just so distraught, and he was telling his friend that his, his phone and his wallet had fallen out. This is Bob the Ocean somewhere. And I'm thinking, you know... I don't know about all this. And we get out there, and sure enough, it's, I mean, it's, I mean, everybody's just sick, throwing up. I mean, it was awful. It was so bad that in order to fish, I had to grab a rail like this the whole time, and I was doing like this. And the one time I let go, it was like somebody pulled a carpet out from me. And I mean, just hours and hours of that, it just makes you sick. You just, you just want some solid ground. You just want a foundation where you can put your feet. I think I kissed the Alabama shore when we got back. But another thing about that illustration that's always stuck out to me is when you're on the ocean like that and you're so far away, you can't see any land. It's just ocean all the way around you. There's no reference point for where you are at all. Everything looks the same. This is the illustration that God gives for the wicked who do not know God. Their life is built on sinking sand. There's no foundation whatsoever. That is not peaceful at all. (laughs) At all. And... um, so we, we need to think about these things. Listen, if you don't get anything else, get the next couple of things I'm about to say. First of all, listen, a life of no boundaries is a life of slavery and confusion. Boundaries and biblical boundaries are good things. Did you know that boundaries are actually freeing? They're actually liberating? If you don't believe me, think about this. Picture yourself at a high-rise condo right there on the beach which I'm not, I don't do well with heights anyway. But think about uh, you've got a balcony. You're 30 stories up. You're overlooking the beach. But the thing about this, the balcony has no railing at all. There's no safety railing. Like if you step too far, you're going to fall 30 stories. Now, I don't know about you, but with me, I couldn't be comfortable with that. Especially with my, you know, like Laura, my kids. and I mean, I would just be in panic mode. I would be just weak in my knees. I couldn't deal with that. There's, that would not be peaceful. But if you put that rail up there, well, then you, you know you're safe. You can actually you can lean up against the rail. You can enjoy the view. That The boundary is a freeing thing. And without that, with no boundaries, there's no peace at all. 
It, you know, the devil promises, the world promises freedom through that, but it just brings, it just brings turmoil. Um, think, think about if you're driving down the road, and especially here where we live in the mountains, and you, you may come across a sign where it says slow down to like 25 miles an hour, major curve in the road. What, do you, what would you do? What would happen if you say, you know what? I don't, I don't need boundaries. I can be my own person. I go as fast as I want to. You do that and see how freeing it really is. You're going to be freed from the windshield. <laughs> or same thing with a red light. I'm just going to drive down. That light just turned red right in front of me. I don't feel like stopping. I can do my own thing. Yeah, you do that, and you see what happens. You see, boundaries are a freeing thing. You want a peaceful marriage? You have two people that have well-defined boundaries, and they stay and respect those boundaries. You want to see a marriage that's an absolute turmoil? You let somebody go outside the bounds of the bonds of marriage. You see what happens in that house. Boundaries are a freeing thing. If you've gone outside your marriage and you commit adultery, even if you can keep that thing a secret for a while, in your heart you're in turmoil. Every time you see them, it bothers you. You want to tell them, and uh, even though it hasn't um, come out, and even though uh, the re- you haven't seen your spouse's rat, you're dying inside. If you tell them that's the right thing to do, and there's a chance of saving the marriage, but man, there's going to be some problems for a while. Why? Because you went outside the bonds that God set in place. But if you don't do that, you don't have to worry about it. I don't have to go to my wife and, and tell her I've been unfaithful. I don't have to worry about that. What a peaceful thing. <laughs> Boundaries are a freeing thing. Don't ever let the world tell you any different. But here's the thing, in a few more minutes, and I'm, I'm coming in for a landing. But I know I've talked about the lost, and we talk about the boundaries, but it's really important to understand, you've got to get this, that even when it comes to Christians, uh, we can find ourselves lacking peace if we're not submitted to the will of God in our, will of God in our life. This is so important. Not knowing the standard is about as bad as rebelling against the standard. They both rob you of peace in the long run. It's amazing how you remember certain things. And one of my earliest memories, I I had to been about two years old. I I was just barely walking. And we had come back to the house from going somewhere. And I had gotten out of the car. And I, I guess mom and dad, they had some things they were trying to get out of the car. They weren't really paying attention. And I went to the back and I grabbed the exhaust on the car. And it burned my hand really bad and it hurt so bad. I didn't have a clue what had happened. I didn't know it was dangerous. I didn't, I didn't understand what that would do to me. But let me ask you this. Let's say somebody gets out of the car and they know exactly what's going to happen if they grab that exhaust. They say, you know what, I'm just going to do it anyway. Guess what, it's going to burn anyway. The consequences are the same whether you know the standard or not or whether you rebel against the standard. Uh, so if, if the truth sets you free, if you don't know the truth, it can't set you free. That's why we have to constantly be in the Word of God and in prayer and under the preaching of the Word of God and be faithful to church so we can know these things. There's so many things there that, that destroy Christians, not because they rebelled against it, because they didn't even know it in the first place. Um, I think it was Amos that said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And so... This is really important, um, and th- this is something that I, I've really been studying and thinking about. I mentioned guilt last week. But, you know, even when it comes to something like guilt, which is also the opposite of peace, by the way, many Christians walk around in a world of guilt every day, and they don't even know why. Guilt, listen, this is, man, this is so important. 
Guilt is the result of falling short of a standard. You had a standard that you thought you should reach. You you had this uh, goal in mind and, and you fell short of that goal. Therefore, you feel guilty. Well, this is really important. Because if we don't have a clear standard, if we're not aiming from a standard from God's Word, then we're going to feel guilty over an unbiblical and sometimes even an invisible standard. Uh, I have often counseled people, Christians, people that I believe are genuinely saved, and they're just to the point of despair and even sometimes suicide. And they, uh, they always, and I, I talk to them and I ask them, and it's, it's very similar to the things I hear. They have all these reasons why they feel so worthless and they're not helping anybody, they're not accomplishing, they're not going anywhere with their life, they're just worthless. Y'all know the next thing I'm coming out with. Worthless by what standard? Guilty by what standard? No count by what standard? You know what the answer is? I don't really know. I don't know. It's because you came up with it. By the way, I call that, when it comes to Satan, I call that the lie of the invisible standard. He does it all the time. You can go back in Scripture, he did the same thing. And that is, if you have those feelings, and you're not basing those things off the truth of the Word of God, you're not basing it by that standard, where does that come from? It comes from the enemy, who heaped all these standards upon you. And the thing about the invisible standard, it can never give you enough information to succeed, or to reach that point of happiness, satisfaction, whatever. It only serves to condemn. If we don't know the standard, we're going to buy into other standards. It may be the standard of somebody else's opinion. It may be the standard of false religion. It may be the standard uh, of your family. Who knows? But if it's not coming from God, it's going to heap things on you that you just need to cast to the side. If we don't have a clear standard from God's Word, we're going to feel guilty over something that's unbiblical. And if you want to be miserable, fight against the truth that God has laid out for us in the Word. Learn the truth, love the truth, live the truth. It's the only thing that can set us free and give us true and lasting peace. There is nothing more peaceful than going to bed with a clean conscience before God and man. We can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. I told you that the first type of peace was peace with God. We find that in Romans 5 and verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly, and I'm done. I'm almost done here. Uh, But thirdly, we're talking about what robs us of peace. We've seen war with a sovereign, war with a standard. But I would say thirdly, war with our situation. And this has to do, as I said, whereas peace with God has to do with salvation, the peace of God has to do with resting in Him and His promises. And I'll be honest, I struggle with that sometimes. And I'll say this too. um, I think some Christians that I had dealt with in the past, they almost make you feel unspiritual if you ever have a bad day. But I think I have learned in my own walk that I think sometimes God allows us to feel despair so that we can contrast that with His grace. There, listen, there's been times where I was just dragging rock bottom and then for no reason it felt like God just renewed that inward man and gave me peace and grace. And He may not have changed the circumstance, but He sure changed me. We would never know that if it wasn't for despair. I, I was reading about Paul recently in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and he made the statement that he went, when he went to Asia, 
He was pushed beyond his strength, and he despaired even of life, but he trusted the Lord. I think despair of life and trusting the Lord can sometimes coincide. Um, but Philippians 4, 6-7, it says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made unto to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Trust in the Lord and give praise unto the Lord, and He will guard our hearts against worry and fear, and will allow the peace of God to reign in our hearts. Remember that we said the opposite of peace is war. And sometimes even Christians go to war, not necessarily with the Word of God, but with the specific will of God for their lives. I'll say one of the hardest lessons to learn in my own life and my own walk is that sometimes, I know this is going to be shocking to you, but sometimes my plans have been different from God's plan. Sometimes my ambitions have been different from what He wanted me to do. And sometimes it's the hardest thing in the world to let go of your own selfish ambition and say, God, okay, whatever you say, I'll do it. See, when we got saved, we just didn't get Christ as Savior. We got Him as Lord. That means He gets to tell you what to do. <laughs> and, you know, some of the, sometimes in my life, the greatest peace has come from simply waving the white flag, from just giving up and saying, God, I'm going to be okay with not being okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to surrender to your will, whatever that means. And man, what a weight lifted off where we give up and give it to God. And even when we can't find peace in our situation, we can find peace in Him. We need not despair over the present and the immediate future in light of eternity. I can say this even about my situation and our situation. It may not be all right today. It may not be all right tomorrow or next month or next year, but it's going to be all right in the end. And that's what we have to focus on. But let me say this, if you're perhaps lost this morning, or maybe you're saved and you find yourself not having the peace of God like you would like, either way, the solution is to surrender. Total surrender. God, I give it to you. And here's the thing, listen, there can't be a war if there's only one side. There can't be a... Listen, if you, all, if you want to get what you want every single time, you want what God wants. You'll always get what you want when you want what God wants. And I've heard repentance said that repentance is when you take sides with God against yourself. There, can, there can't be a war if you and God are on the same side. And let me say this, God's not going to surrender. It's full stop. He's not going to surrender. So we, we just need to surrender to God for the peace. And I'm going to read this and I'm done. This is a, a few paragraphs from... John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It's actually the second most sold book in the English language, just second to the King James Bible. Uh, Bunyan actually wrote this on the prison wall when he was in prison for like, I think it was like 14 years because he refused to allow the Church of England to tell him what to preach. But uh, if you remember, um, the book itself is an allegory. It follows a man by the name of Christian. And if you read it, you clearly recognize it's talking about the journey of the Christian life and throughout the whole first part of the book, it's talking about Christian's burden, his weight. It's talking about his guilt. But I love, I love this here. Um, he said, Christian said, Now I saw in my dream that the highway at which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burden Christian run, but not without great difficulty, because of the load on his back. 
He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher, which is a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with a cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continue to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher well, it fell in, and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked and therefore looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. Now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him, with peace be to thee. So the first one said to him, Thy sins be forgiven thee. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with the change of raiment. The third also set a mark in his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it, which he bade him look as he ran, that he should give it to the celestial gate. So they went their way. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. Thus far I did come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither, what a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must here the burden fall from off my back. Must here the strings that bound me it to crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was to put shame for me. And so, the only way to have peace is ultimately to be right with God. That's it. Because ultimately, if you don't have peace, you're probably in some way at war with God. And whether you need salvation or just surrender, do just that. Wave the white flag and give up. That's the only way to have peace. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Would you stand this morning? She comes. Heavenly Father, we love you, Lord. Thank you for your word.